hefty shortbread biscuits. <laughs> shortbread, 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 shortbread. 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 See, so he just raises his eyebrows and you, you talk. It's, it's like, like Pavlov, isn't it, in many yeah. ways? <laughs> mm. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three. How about that? Yeah, everybody's We're pretty, all coming in at a nice, good a nice now. three, okay. what, three sounds, what sounds do you need to get in? Like, what sounds are you aiming to, to test out? Is it your hard T's and your yeah, K's? You're kind of your hard, yeah, TK. Hence um, why toast is such a good Toast. Word. Toast Costa Coffee. Sponsored by what? <laughs> Welcome to oh, Costa Coffee. You're not doing your man V fat again, are you? Cake. You're not doing that Do you want through. some toast? There must be like a phrase you could, you could come up with. Yeah, oh yeah. There must be yeah. a phrase you can talk with. If you can, you'd be a so hero you want of the broadcasting your, you want industry. Your, your teas, you want your cuz. Anything else? Anything else you need? Soup and carmoon. I think all the vowel sounds you'd want in there, wouldn't um, you? You need, okay. you need a pop check, don't you? So Totalitarianism. You need a, P, a P and a B. A P and a B. So the key ones are P, B, T and hard, hard C or K. I, I like the idea of guests who are probably a little bit anxious about mm. coming on the radio, walk into the <laughs> studio and choose. Could you just say totalitarianism for me? <laughs> totalitarianism. Topless hand relief. It's the same thing. <laughs> that works just as well for... Public toilet... Co- convenience. <laughs> Public toilet convenience. Yeah. Totalitarianism. Everyone knows about that, Ginger don't they? would make a great studio manager, wouldn't he? Putting people at ease. Can you just say, flop the radio. Hilly pilification, please. <laughs> just, just for the mic. Just, just for our, for our sound check. They usually say, just say a few words. Just, just say a few words. But actually, they would be saying, can you just say one really long word? Yeah. Just pick one really long yeah. word. Anti-disestablishmentarianism. That, that's the actually, way to super do it. Actually, catrifi- super, super califragilisticexpialidocious would be a good one for all the mm, content. That's not a real world, though, is it really? Is it a real world? Or well, a real it's word? not in the real world, that <laughs> word being real. What are we talking about? Public toilet convenience cable. No? Is that a thing? That's not what, one word. Laying, that's laying cable in a no, public let's, convenience. Let, let's not be sophomoric about specific. this. Come on. The, is that not a, is, does that not tick all the boxes? Well, you've got, you don't need the cable if you've got the convenience. Convenience, that's because true. Because you've right, got yeah, the pub yeah. lick in the Pu- public. Would you want a sort of balloon in there for the buh, the buh pop? So a, a, an initial syllable B rather than... Yeah. Um, but Bacharach, that kind of thing. Yeah, but if Bert's name You'd was actually Bert. Peter. He's got a brother. Called? Peter Bacharach. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. So I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, 42 yesterday. Andy Hinchcliffe, 51 today. And Rory Smith, 35 forever. That's not true. I'm 37. But don't you have a showbiz age like all other people in the media like no, uh, who I'm, are so successful? I am only the fifth most famous person who gets my hair cut at the place where I get my hair cut. Turns Af- out. After who? After Top four? Kevin Zinedine Kilban. <laughs> uh, Justin Morehouse. Mm. Uh, Jason Manford. And someone on Corrie who I've not heard of. You're more famous than the person on Corrie then? No. Not a chance. They're on Corrie. Come on. They get, they, they get a good ten, 10 million four yeah. times a week. You're global though. Corrie is, is very, very provincial. Oh, no, I don't know. Corrie is you, you're risking exported the audience, massively. Huh? Exported mass. I mean, it's, it's a slice of life in the UK. Coronation People. Street tells the universal story of what happens when you put an underwear factory in a society that contains many murderers. <laughs> I probably should watch it more often. Then. The juxtaposition is very English. I, mean, I, I haven't got the reference. I haven't watched Coronation Street in about twenty years. I don't know if that stuff still happens. I think it definitely still happens. Yeah. In fact, Emmerdale at the moment is just—I think it's just had a murder story, and that's in Yorkshire. So you well know. That is a dangerous place. Yorkshire, the countryside in Yorkshire, there are many murders. Many, many murders. Many murders. Uh, the food has been provided by Stephen. The food is Stephen. 
inspired by one of our um, favourite lunchtime spots locally, the Burton Road Bakery. It was chicken, mozzarella and pesto toasted sandwiches. They do them as paninis, mm-hmm. but I thought, we all like sourdough bread. We do. We all like that toasted. I went for that option. That is the food. The football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about Are today? we doing our least favourite football shirts? Uh, no. no. We're not doing that. Have you been paying attention what, to Wait a minute. Have you got that, 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 that WhatsApp group that I'm not on again? Because that's what I was told we were talking about. No, that's not true. Today we are asking if footballers like playing football as much as non-footballers do. We get very excited if we score a goal, mainly because it's rare, but do they? Really? Because it's not that rare, is it? Certainly not for Andy 25 goal Hinchcliffe. Uh, get in touch with the programme. You can uh, email us at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Uh, now, you may well have noticed that we haven't made specific reference yet on the podcast to the big Reacher news. Well, followers on Twitter were able to get some fairly contemporaneous reaction, but our recording schedule, our very organised, proactive recording schedule, has precluded us doing so in this format thus far. And it would have seemed a little strange that we mentioned the Booker Prize and not the fact that Lee Child was retiring last week. So, uh, yes, thanks for all the emails. Oh, well, um, that's what you get for being organised and proactive. But now, for the first time in this audio medium, Chinch, your reaction to Lee Child Um. retiring. Well, I'm trying to think during my life, during my career, have I ever felt this bad? I remember waking up after my last operation, my 12th operation, and the surgeon basically said, your career's over. That was quite hard to take. Do you think it was necessary um, that they told you you weren't very good in the first place? No, he didn't say that. Just yeah, I, he might have said that, but I didn't hear him. Um, but he said it's no loss to football, but it, it clearly was. <laughs> but this news, this news, it was a bolt from the blue. I don't like bolts in the blue unless they're really good news, and this is bad news. But at least we've always got the balance of maybe Rory Smith moving into the world of Jack Reacher. Can you see yourself writing a bit of Reacher, maybe? I mean, I'm not sure I can see myself reading a bit of Reacher, to be honest. But is he not giving it to his brother? Well, the equally untalented Andrew something, and he says that that's, Andrew Hinchcliffe would that, be. Just what, as good. What's the main reason that he's uh, clearly it's not taxing to write these books because it's like they've been written by an eight-year-old. He's sixty-five. So, he lives, a, he lives on a big, oh, Lee Child, sixty-five. Lee Child. He lives yeah, on yeah. a big homestead in Wyoming. He does, he? and it looks so very he's, pleasant. He's, it looks amazing. So he's, I can see why he's why he's retiring to do that. But I find it interesting that he thinks that writing terrible novels is uh, genetic. We've got to be a little bit careful here about suggesting that Lee Child is retiring. He is going to be overseeing the Jack Reacher series, which oh, is okay. currently in pre-production for Amazon Prime. Yeah. And let's be honest, there are four very suitable candidates for recurring roles, depending on how successful the series is. Well, three, because I'm quite highbrow. Yeah, but I think our performances during the live show have demonstrated our ability to adapt to the Reacher medium. So let's not overlook the potential for Lee Child's slight deviation in terms of his career path to include us. Yeah. So... Don't I'd talk, love, da- don't talk to down s- to him yeah. too much because there's I'd, an opportunity here. There's definitely a role there for you to be head-butted in the face. Yeah, a guy who gets head-butted. Don't one. say anything. Just walk on with a pair of fancy glasses on. You can be a computer geek and then you get splattered. And that, that you played your part. Steve, your neighbour, who, who yes. disappeared at the window. Neil. Is he a nice fella? Very nice. Very nice. Why is he wearing a lanyard at home? <laughs> because he's probably just popped home. It's sort of lunchtime, isn't it? He might have popped home. He doesn't have to wear a lanyard to gain access. Oh, the, all the doors along here. Is that have, how it works? Uh, key code security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, meanwhile, having brought up the Booker Prize um, uh, earlier, just a moment or two ago, and also last week through the prism of Beck Richmond, mm. here is Beck again. She emails this. Okay, 
This is getting seriously weird now. First the Booker panel, and now this. It cannot be a coincidence that all this is happening since Out of Context Reacher kicked off. Mm -hmm. Also, she says, I offer a Reacher excerpt that I feel would benefit from passing through Chinch's lips, like the very espresso described therein, albeit in the other direction. That's from Beck. And this, Chinch, is an Out of Context Reacher from the hard way. It's, it's, it's poignant as well, because I'm, most of them I just read them. This one I, I really do feel. Jack Reacher ordered espresso, double, no peel, no cube, foam cup, no china. And before it arrived at his table, he saw a man's life change forever. Not that the waiter was slow, just that the move was slick. So slick, Reacher had no idea what he was watching. It was just an urban scene repeated everywhere in the world a billion times a day. A billion times. A guy unlocked a car and got in and drove away. That was all. But that was enough. The espresso had been close to perfect, so Reacher went back to the same cafe exactly 24 hours later. Two nights in the same place was unusual for Reacher, but he figured great coffee was worth a change in his routine. The cafe was on the west side of 6th Avenue in New York City, in the middle of the block between Bleecker and Houston. It occupied the ground floor of an undistinguished four-storey building. The upper storeys looked like anonymous rental apartments. The cafe itself looked like a transplant from a back street in Rome. Inside it had low light and scarred wooden walls and a dented chrome machine as hot and long as a locomotive and a counter. Outside there was a single line of metal tables on the sidewalk below a low canvas screen. Reacher took the same end table that he'd used the night before and chose the same seat. He stretched out and got comfortable and tipped his chair up on two legs. I'm just all boy. That put his back up against the cafe's outside wall and left him looking east across the sidewalk and the width of the avenue. He liked to sit outside in the summer in New York City, especially at night. He liked the electric darkness and the hot, dirty air and the blasts of noise and traffic and the manic barking sirens and the crush of people. It helped a lonely man feel connected and isolated both at the same time. He was served by the same waitress the night before and ordered the same drink, double espresso in a foam cup, no sugar, no spoon. He paid for it as soon as it arrived and left his change on the table. That way he could leave exactly when he wanted to without insulting the waiter or Bill, is it Bill King? Bill King. Bill King? Yeah, it means it's like Milk King, but with a B. Okay. <laughs> oh, I can't, that's in my head now. That way he could leave exactly when he wanted to, without insulting the waiter or bilking the owner or stealing the china. Reacher always arranged why would, the... Why would he steal the china? Why would that be an option? I, I don't know. He's a crazy it man. It might be really good china. It's an espresso. It takes like 10 seconds to drink it. This man's an idiot. <laughs> Reacher always arranged the smallest details in his life so he could move on at a split second's notice. It was an obsessive habit. He owned nothing and carried nothing. Physically, he was a big man, but he cast a small shadow and left very little in his wake. That'll be to do with um, where he's standing in relation to the light. Uh, no, it's, ah, again, trying yeah. to say about... Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. But yeah. uh, thank you, Chinch. What do, what I know that for um, you was very moving. What does no peel mean in a, in a coffee? I don't know. No idea. I quite like a cup of coffee. I don't like a... I'm, you know, I'm not yeah, a coffee ponce. With, with tea, did they do like a lemon peel? Did they take like the peel of a lemon and put it into tea? They wouldn't do that with coffee, though, would they? That would no, be, that would not be an awful. espresso, a double espresso, no. Well, well, yeah, peel. No peel, no cube. No cube. Cube, cube of sugar. I mean, yeah, but the, the sugar's a, an optional extra for coffee. You wouldn't automatically expect... I think you notice that the description is very, very specific and it's very, very, very specific. Clear. Basically, what he's describing is an espresso in a coffee cup. Uh, now, the episode about which we continue to get the most emails is number 161, about the perceived difference in coverage between Manchester City and Liverpool. So how about, gents, a fan of either? John Lewis is a... Well, How about a fan, a fan of, of both? A fan of both. 
Yeah. A fan of both, a fan of either, and indeed a fan of each. John Lewis is a Manchester City fan in the US. He says, hey there, guys, because he's American. He's not the John Lewis yeah, with yeah, yeah. the John Lewis Twitter handle, is he? He's, he, he may well be, but he's not the last uh, famous name correspondent in this episode. Hey there, guys. First time emailer, but regular listener to the pod. I recommend it to everyone I know who is a football fan. Start recommending it to others as well, please. I was listening to Pod 161, and while I agree that people are in echo chambers, and this is increasingly true as time goes on, I disagree that there isn't a slant to the coverage. I've been a football fan for some 13 to 14 years now, and there is one thing I find extremely strange about the football media in the UK. The openness with which pundits, reporters, referees, players, whoever are with their biases and allegiances. As someone who has worked in various positions in the media here in the States, publicly de- declaring myself a fan of a team would all but ban me from writing anything about that team, negative or positive. But in the UK, not only is it not uncommon for former players to call matches and discuss their former, play- former employers, but it's almost as if they are the go-tos. Manchester United and Liverpool playing? Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville are doing the match. Carragher freaking out about a, uh, freaking out about a goal from Mo Salah is always going to come across poorly. As for the journalists and bias, I think a major problem is that social media has made it easy to engage with one another. Take Miguel Delaney, for example. Miguel gets a lot of pop in our correspondence over the last few weeks. Oh, is that right? That's true. I'll tell him. Uh, uh, please do. He'll be delighted. I personally think his writing is sound and his articles likely entirely true. <laughs> I, I would say that the best way to describe Miguel's Writing is at best sound. <laughs> at best sound and likely entirely true. Grammatically coherent. <laughs> I'm sure, uh, says John, he's also a lovely gentleman. Mm. That said, because you knew it was coming, when you write a negative article about something, you should expect a negative response. If you say that City fans should be embarrassed by their club because of what happens in Abu Dhabi, you should expect kickback, particularly if they then engage in arguments about their article. Now there is no assumption of neutral reporting. You've shown your hand of, I don't like this club for XYZ reason. Considering the stories like this, it's hard to say that there isn't a slight slight one way or another anyway love the pod from John Lewis not that one but not but not so we know he's not the superstore he's it's not, not really a superstore super John Lewis is it it's a kind of high end life high end it's a department knick-knack. store it's a department high end knick knack dispensary it's basically an everything store have you been to John Lewis well, it's, it is round round these parts I have been to John Lewis I go to John Lewis far more than I want to mm. and I never really want to buy anything in John Lewis I mean short of food you can get everything you need you know from John, about, John Lewis do you know what he's talk about John Lewis the toy section is amazing you can literally entertain a two year old it's like a crash. yeah I, I totally get John Lewis's point we haven't yet established whether he's the John Lewis who owns the Twitter handle John Lewis even if we know he's not John Lewis who owns John Lewis but I don't think writing something negative about a club should automatically follow that you get a negative reaction. Mm. That, isn't, that, that, to me, is a logical fallacy. Particularly if that is the truth. Yeah. And as John mm-hmm. himself says, Miguel, for example, his articles are likely entirely true. And equally, I don't think... Miguel, the other thing that I think is too much of a leap, but I agree that it's a leap that people make, is that Miguel doesn't dislike Manchester City because he has a problem with what he perceives the club are being used for by Abu Dhabi. He, Miguel, as far as I know, is kind of Manchester City neutral. He just thinks that's an interesting story, and it's a it's a line or an aspect of coverage that he feels a duty to pursue and an interest in pursuing. It, it clearly appeals to him. I don't want to speak for him. He's not doing it because he, he's not he's not created that story because he wants to criticise Man City. That is a valid story. It is a story that doesn't necessarily lead to any emotional reaction about the club itself. Yeah, they're separate. There is, they're separate. There is no through if, line. If Man City the two. was owned by a relatively faceless American hedge fund, then he wouldn't he wouldn't be sort of think, f- trying to find a way to r- to write 
negatively about Manchester City. It would just be, well, they're owned by a... We've all kind of accepted that, that relatively faithless American hedge funds are probably not a force for good in the world, but they do kind of own sports teams. We had a, a tweet about this from Mark Jeffries, who's the showbiz editor at The Mirror. My former colleague, Mark Jeffries. And he starts, good episode, lads, which, which is the correct way to start all correspondence. As an aside, I think it is very hard to measure bias, as there are lots of factors. Surely, if you were a fan of City slash Liverpool, you might be harder on the team if they lost or more critical. And then he goes on to suggest, you know, that the media don't necessarily represent that. But... I think with City this season in particular, there is certainly plenty of evidence around that bizarrely, although that would what Mark says is is normally very true, those hardcore fans are more likely to 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 ride the peaks and troughs of the roller coaster, that there is still an awful lot of the defence strategy about the City support. They're still very, very defensive about the way that City are going about their title defence. And and that strikes me as being quite unusual and out of keeping with So it's not what the team are doing, it's how they're being reported. Yeah, yeah. They're more concerned with. Yeah, there's, 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 Mark's completely right. I think generally fans are much more critical. And there, it's one of those weird things that you just you've all, you get used to with pretty much every team that you can, as a journalist, you can criticise, say, an inoffensive, basically irrelevant team, Southampton, lose a football match. If you're critical as a perceived neutral about Southampton, fans will will find that harder to take than someone who identifies with Southampton criticise them. It's, the fam- it's a really obvious point, but it's the family thing. Like you, I, I insult my parents the whole time, but please do not feel free to insult my parents, I, particularly I, in the context. I'm just struck by the fact there aren't more vociferous, outspoken City fans being critical of the way things have gone for them. They're not being critical about the team, they're being critical about the coverage. Yes, it's completely out of keeping with the norm. But equally, I I do wonder whether there is a tendency, and to be honest, I've gone gone down a few Twitter rabbit holes recently where I've looked at the replies to big accounts tweeting things, and... I don't say this. I don't want to sneer at anybody, but there really are some complete idiots in the world. It is astonishing when you sort of see the general when you come out of your bubble in that way. Um, and, and the Twitterverse is is often considered to be the universe, but it is but not. It's Those not. are two it's, separate things. And particularly when you boil it down to really, really devoted fan accounts who who are not representative of the way that normal the way that normal fans think. And I think as journalists, we're often guilty of writing to those people rather than the general morass. But I do think there is a a tendency now, when faced with the possibility to, to criticise your club for performing poorly or not meeting ex- expectations or whatever, it is much more comforting to kick back against the coverage. And it always strikes me there's a lot of people who, A, like discussing the coverage of football more than the actual football, and B, there's quite a lot of people who write about the coverage of football rather than actual football or stories within football. And I, th- I, th- I think that's a really strange like meta-development where we're not... We're almost taking one, one step removed from the actual thing we're meant to be talking about. Yeah, we may well be guilty of that as well. But uh, we all find it fascinating, I think. Um, uh, We had John Lewis, Mm -hmm. the Liverpool fan, is from Brazil, and his name is... No, Alistair Campbell. Really? Yes, former Labour spin spin doctor for all those uh, under the Tony Blair government, for all those who are outside of the UK and don't really care. Dear esteemed content providers, having listened to the pod for the last six months, episode 161 was the first time I felt the need to write in. First up, I am a Liverpool fan and obviously hold a healthy dislike of any team that can challenge the Reds for silverware, Manchester City, of course, being an obvious example. However, whilst I felt your discussion on the subject of both the media's and fans' different perceptions of the achievements of said football clubs was reasonable, I was left with the feeling that all members, with the possible exception of Steve, 
who briefly mentioned the old versus new money dynamic, failed to get to the heart of why so many fans that I believe treat the recent sporting achievements of Manchester City differently to those of other clubs. Simply put, until the club can provide clear evidence that they have followed rules slash regulations that comprise the financial fair play initiative, and in the spirit in which those regulations were created, I believe many football fans will continue to consider their achievements as analogous to those of sprinters who are later found to have used performance-enhancing drugs, i.e. success achieved by unfair means. So yes, they are a marvellous football team full of wonderful players, but at the end of the day, what does it matter if it was achieved by a route unavailable to other clubs? Best wishes, Alistair, teaching Brazilians one aimless punter at a time and also the value of the second ball. But I'd go the other way on that. It's an interesting point. I'd say that the fact that City City's story is kind of so unlikely, that it is so unique, effectively, that, you know, kind of large, historic, but largely kind of middle-of-the-road club gets... To, taken over by, by this, this, this investor who pumps all this money in. I think the, f- the way fans interpret that is that it's a lie that you can tell yourself. It's they, they, you lie that you, they can only do that. They can only do that because, um, because, of that, because of the money situation. So that can never happen to us, so I don't need to be jealous of it. If you look at a lot of the way that, certainly last season, the Liverpool and Manchester City were compared, I would say the vast majority of neutrals really wanted Manchester City to win that title, much more so than Liverpool, without a shadow of a doubt. And obviously with Man United fans, Chelsea fans, Everton fans, probably some Arsenal, some Leeds fans, I guess, there's, there's historic reasons for that and it's valid and it's understandable. But there was a point definitely in the middle of last season where I thought this is really strange that this, this perceived new money club is the neutral's favourite. And it's because fans can tell themselves they are only doing it because of this. So I, it is so unusual that I don't need to be jealous. I definitely think that was true of a lot of Manchester United fans I know. Certainly, maybe not in the last couple of seasons, but, but previously, that they didn't object to Manchester City winning the title as much as they would have done Liverpool because they could make that very argument you've just described. It is the displacement of pain or hurt that we've talked about in so many other ways. It's a way of f- finding either a scapegoat or a reason for you to not feel that pure, yeah. unadulterated hurt that you would do in any other circumstance. But in the same way as you have talked about people you know who cover Premier League football, who dislike Liverpool for all sorts of weird and wonderful reasons, there are going to be people for that new money, old money reason who dislike Manchester City. However much there are others who will quantify that success as being acceptable because it's so unachievable, there will be plenty of others who sneer at the idea of the nouveau riche being not not so much successful once, but continuing to be successful. It's a bit like the lottery winner who goes out and buys a really nice car. You don't mind the first time. If they buy themselves a really nice car every year and rub your noses in it, you're yeah. going to start getting a bit annoyed with them. Uh, finally, remember we were asking for questions that started manager most likely to and then didn't have the answer, Sean Dyche. Mm-hmm. Well, Graham Langlands has one. Manager most likely to get out an acoustic guitar and play you something he wrote that sounds suspiciously like Wonderwall... Graham Potter. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, do keep nice. them coming. Uh, and nice. indeed, all correspondence to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. <laughs> Our subject today is provided by Chris Etchingham in Cornwall, where Chris says we are very welcome to go and do a live show. Dear John, Paul, George and Rory, <laughs> I have been listening to the very excellent pod for just over a year now and felt it was time to contribute. Over Christmas, with lots of spare time, I looked at some old sports books, two of which were Zimmermen and Rain Men by the brilliant Marcus Berkman. Whilst being books on cricket, I was struck by one point made, which was, 
Do amateur sportsmen enjoy their chosen sport more than professionals? The example in the book was the Australian cricket legend Mark Waugh, who when he hit a ball for four would be pretty nonplussed, as that is what he did. Yet when your average Joe on a village cricket team does the same thing, they're ecstatic because it doesn't happen so much, and in some cases, it is the last thing they're actually expecting. With this being the case, do footballers enjoy playing as much as we normal folk do? When I score a goal, it's a tremendous feeling, as I very rarely, rarely do, do so, even in five aside. On the other side, do pro footballers have the rubbish jobs that nobody wants to do? Is a professional footballer tracking back the equivalent of an office worker at 5pm on a Friday doing some mundane photocopying? Love the show. Keep up the great work. That is from Chris. So the question is, do footballers enjoy playing football as much as non-footballers do? For them, it's the job. For us, it'll never be. And so do football fans like the game more than football players? And we all, with our heads, turn well, towards Andy Hinch. You, you presume it's about levels of ability, and professional players clearly are better at the game than amateur players. So if you're an amateur, even doing something like controlling the ball and pinging an accurate pass is, is something that you would think, well, you don't do that every time you take possession of the ball. But for a professional player, that's kind of, well, we can do that without even thinking because of the level that we're at. So again, for a professional player, you have to maybe do something on a really... Uh, such a high scale to enjoy it because the, the basis of what you do is at such a high level to start with. So surely it is about simply how good you are at that game. So something you do well as an amateur will be something that's taken for granted as a professional. So clearly, is it not pretty obvious why amateurs probably enjoy playing the game? Or is it more frustrating as an amateur? If you do, again, the ball rolls underneath your foot continuously, like when Hugh plays, do you not just want to give up? Or is it is it hoping that you'll get that that fantastic crossfield pass or that brilliant free kick, is that what the amateurs play the game for? Well, three of us have played five-a-side football together. We did mm-hmm. so quite regularly for a while. You're the exception, Chinch. You wouldn't have got in the team, I'm afraid. Uh, well, not, not even in goal? No, no, not with your injury problems. No. Oh, I see. It was too much, of, too much of a liability at Chalton. I just can't cover the ground for you. Let me tell yeah, you, Chinch, yeah. Dave Wyeth would not have put up with your lapse attitude to marking. Although Dave Wyeth is sim- similarly left-footed and nothing else, so he, yes. he would have had to have been on the opposing team, otherwise that, that team would have been very left-handed. And, and, is, and is responsible for at least one of the serious injuries that I suffered whilst playing. I, I, I quite enjoyed the Chalton, marking and the running off the ball, because I thought that's when I really came into my own and I didn't have the ball to worry about. <laughs> But in, in our games, when somebody smashed in a worldie, that was a joyous moment because it was just completely once-in-a-lifetime moment, wasn't yeah. it? And it was a fluke. So you could, you oh. could laugh about it as much as celebrate it. Well, Roy tried a lot. So, you know, one out of 20 goes, it might not have been that much of a surprise. I think, that, I think that's overestimating my, my success rate. Whereas if Chinch smashes a worldie in the top corner... We, it's not a worldie, uh, though, is as, it? Much as we can enjoy that moment. No, I'm not being funny. If I'm taking free kicks from 30 practice. yards and I put it in the top corner, I'm thinking, well, that, that's what I'm training to do and I've got the ability to do it and I'm training myself to do it. So I don't, if I then do it, I don't then go, oh my God, it's come off. That, that's the whole point I think of a it. lot of people in the ground. No, well, they... <laughs> How very dare you. They might have thought at the time yes. that it was yes. out of, you know, it was absolutely extraordinary. But as you have explained in previous podcasts, it was a result of... Practice, training, yeah. mental concentration. Absolutely. Yeah. You would you say on balance that you had a nice time during? Your I, career? I'm the wrong, completely the wrong person to ask because, again, I, I remember when I was 15, 16, 17. And we talked about setting pensions. I, I did see it as as a job. Mm. I I got married young. I had a mortgage. I had a young family eventually as well. And then these things, it's it's a means to an end, mm. and that's the thing. Again, that that 
brings pressure for a professional as well. Yes, you've got the ability to play the game, but it, it does bring the money in. It's not, of course, it's not as the, the financially, it's not as great as it is today when I was playing, but it still was the job that I was most gifted at and it, it, it paid your way. So I, I ultimately did see that. And did I enjoy it? Up until maybe 26, 27, when maybe I as a person started to settle down, then I could relax. I just never felt relaxed when I played because I was not convinced that I was actually any good. Genuinely, I'm not just saying that. I didn't feel I was as good as the people that were around me. So that's, again, I'm the wrong person to ask about enjoyment of the game. I want to establish the level that you were talking about, Chinch. So if we as amateur players have a low level, low base level, and anything above that might give us particular joy because we have overachieved... Like, for example, as you say, me controlling the ball might have given me great joy because nobody would have expected it. Steve's talking about worldies, so his level is yes. a lot higher. Yeah. But yours, for example, was an incredibly high base level. So your floor was high, your yeah. ceiling was even higher, and goodness me, you represented your country no less than seven times mm -hmm. in your career. Keep talking. But, but what gave you, if a, even a free kick into the top corner didn't necessarily make you think, wow, that was pretty cool, what did make you think, what was above your level your base level to make you think it, oh that was pretty cool the, I, I might watch that back on my it today. wasn't above my base it wasn't actually I enjoyed creating goals for other people and I'm not just saying that why did you do it more often good. I did it an awful lot Stephen I, I did I, I didn't want to be, I think I've said this before I didn't want to be the centre of attention but doing my job to enable someone else to take the glory and do their job well I felt I've I've done my job within the team framework. That's what it is all about. If I can get forward on the overlap, put a great cross in, striker scores, the team has functioned well and the striker scored the goal which he's in the team to do. So I genuinely, that never changed for me. I loved, because I knew I wasn't really a goal scorer, maybe the odd free kick I could score, but I wasn't the type of player that was going to score. I never had a celebration. I never needed one because I didn't score enough goals to, to warrant practicing what I should do when I scored but I loved setting them up for other people so that, that's where my real enjoyment in the game came from Do you remember uh, the majority of players that you played with seeming to enjoy their work? More or, than I did, yes Or did, do you yeah. think quite, quite a lot of them regarded it mainly as a job? Well we, we do probably talk about it players back then because maybe the public and fans watching you play and maybe as amateur sportsmen themselves were, were thinking, well, I would love to be in your position. So clearly this must be something you enjoy doing, you're good at and you're getting well paid for. So the enjoyment level that you must feel playing football must be enormous. But it, again, that's really interesting. If you took, asked every professional player in this country, do you really enjoy, hand on heart, enjoy the job that you do? Clearly, because there's a lot goes into the human beings and again, the stresses and strains of playing. It's not that they're saying, feel sorry for me, but it, they are human beings who are exceptionally talented at the job that they do. Enjoyment. I think a lot, maybe a lot of them won't. It's not as if 99% of the players really just absolutely adore the job that they do. A lot of them will see it, depending on injuries and how long they've been playing, will see it as... This is something that I need to get through. This is a game I need to get through, or a season I need to get through, or five years to get to the end of my career. So you do have to cut your cloth as a, as a professional. But that's being a professional. Mm. It isn't, you don't, you're not playing the game necessarily for enjoyment. That is something that you probably have when you've made enough money in some ways, or you're experienced enough where you have um, faith in your own ability, and you can relax, and then you can really enjoy. I was always felt every game I played, I had a point to prove. And this was the game where I'd let myself down, and everyone would say, ah, we always thought you were that poor player. And that's why I always felt under pressure when I played and maybe didn't enjoy the game as much as I should have done. I'm always struck by 
the former players that I work with, how few of them seem to still play football on a regular basis. It's because their knees are knackered. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's <laughs> I, I, big... I don't miss. I don't miss. I know yeah. I'm injured. I can't play. I, I don't miss playing one bit. There are those that occasionally... I love watching it, but I don't want to play. They occasionally play in like masters competitions no. or, mm-hmm. you, you know, they work as club ambassadors perhaps <laughs> and there's occasional games on, on tour, five aside, six aside. But other than those who... I suppose even those involved in coaching aren't necessarily kicking a ball all that often themselves. They're, mm-hmm. they're overseeing the, the progress of, of emerging talent. But so is that because many more of them were like you than perhaps we realised that towards the end of their careers or even when they were at the peak of their careers, they weren't necessarily enjoying it? Or is it because they can no longer perform at the very, very peak and therefore they don't feel as though they would be able to enjoy playing at a much lower level or, a much, you know, in terms of a much limited version of their ability? I, I suppose with, with the amateur sportsmen, you, you, you go to work and then presumably you play football or play sport mm-hmm. For pure yeah, enjoyment, what if you know if work isn't isn't you don't have to work today. What do you want to do? I want to go and play football because that's what I really enjoy. If you said that to a professional player, what do you want to do on your day off? Go to an office between nine and five. Just exactly, yeah. <laughs> do some photocopies. <laughs> I, I doubt <laughs> it. They're going to say, you know, what, I want to go back out and actually. Because again, maybe it's something if you do it. It's like anything. You can say, well, I, I want to retire and I want to uh, lie on a beach. Everything. So everything gets boring, no matter how amazing it might seem to other people and how much money you get paid for it. it it does become mundane and it becomes a job it has to become a job because it is a job and again people are relying on you coaches clubs your team everybody's relying on you so it, it isn't the same it can't be the same it's not the same game you're not playing the same it, game mentally as much as physically it would be like us on our day off sitting down putting on headphones holding a microphone and talking about football it would be an idiotic thing to do. Oh, nobody yeah. would recommend that, that. Would be but, uh, nobody, this, I think genuinely think this is the the Almost like the fundamental misunderstanding when people look at professional football is the expectation that they're all having a nice time. They're not. I think that I would, I would, this is not scientific, but I would imagine that the majority of players do not necessarily enjoy their day-to-day. I think the majority of them see it, an overwhelming majority of them see it, at, come to see it. Certainly, I, I, Instinctively, I'd say that it's the other way around. I'd say that when you're younger, you enjoy it more. And then when you've hit the peak of your career, you're kind of established, you, start, you see it as, as a job. And I realise that people, whenever you raise that, people always say, well, they earn so much money and it's, 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 so, it's such a lucrative lifestyle and they, don't, you know, they have to do two hours work a day and it's running around and it's easy. And there's no question that it is a privilege to be a footballer. But the kind of very nature of privilege is that you don't realise you've got it. That's kind of the point of checking your privilege and stuff, you me- you meant to kind of think about it. So although footballers are privileged, they understandably, like all of us, don't necessarily realise all of the time that they are privileged. And I think to the vast majority of footballers, it is, there are probably moments where they're happy, when they win something, when they win a game, when they win a trophy, when they when they score, when they provide an assist, when they do something that they're, they're really proud of. But I think the vast majority of it, they find draining, stressful, mundane, all those things that we, we, that we all do with our jobs. Not me, because obviously my boss is listening. But, the, <laughs> um, the, but the everyone, it, because it is their work. And I think we, we too often don't, as fans, we kind of don't remember that. So you, you'll quite often hear players being criticised for not looking like, you know, their heart's in it or whatever. But is your heart in it every day? You don't to work? Probably not. Just because there's 50,000 people cheering for you, doesn't mean you're... You talk about our work. 50,000 yeah. people cheer us on a almost mean, daily it, basis. It doesn't mean you're immune from all the 
distresses and strains that everybody feels. You, you are talking about some sort of law of diminishing returns, particularly for if you imagine you are a striker and you are scoring goals regularly, then clearly the more goals you score, it might not be as fresh and exciting as your first goal mm-hmm. that you score. And, and games might not be as exciting as the debut that you make when you're a youngster. And the point that Chris makes in his email is about the element of rarity. If something is rare, it's always going to feel more special because it happens fewer times. Mm-hmm. So if you're, uh, if you, and not necessarily you because you've spoken about assists being more important to you than goals, but if you are a defender and you score rarely, mm-hmm. is it safe to assume using the rarity argument that defenders will actually feel a greater enjoyment in scoring a goal than a striker who's, who should be or is expected to score goals. I took more pride, genuinely, I'm not just saying this, from a clean sheet than scoring a goal. And I must have played in games where I've scored and we've kept a clean sheet. Is that the case? I'm sure it must have happened. But genuinely, genuinely, if we come on, especially when I was at Sheffield Wednesday, when it was so important that defensively we worked together because we had Paolo Di Canio, Benny Carboni, who would win game for us. We weren't a team. We were kind of two teams within one. We had those two lads who could win the game for us. Andy Booth occasionally would head in one of my crosses. But it was mainly Carboni and Di Canio. So the rest of us had to defend like demons. And we took incredible pride and I took incredible pride if we came off and we kept a clear that ultimately was my job as a defender I'm not sure it's quite the same these days maybe modern fullbacks really want to score a lot more goals because the, the game has changed dramatically but yeah I, I would have taken more pride from, from clean sheets than actually score it felt weird to score because I was so it didn't feel as though I kind of this is what I'm playing the game for it, I felt really not the right person to be scoring goals in because it wasn't specifically my job. And as a person, I, I didn't want it to be about me because it was when I, I played the sport, it was about the team ethic. And it, I, I don't think it should kind of focus on me. Uh, did you celebrate clean sheets because they were a rarity and therefore they... No, they weren't. They were pretty much every other week every for the teams other I week. played for. But you, you're talking about imposter syndrome which lots of people have when things go well for them yes you are an actor or a stand-up comedian that is incredibly successful has tv shows or movies making millions and millions of pounds around the world you might often feel because you're not necessarily as aware of what the alternative might be because you are living that life you you have imposter syndrome are you are you telling me that you in particular and others even as footballers and ensconced in that world and not really understanding anything about the real world around them, mm. they are experiencing that imposter it, syndrome. It can't have just been me feeling like that. It must be, there must be a lot of large percentage of, of players who, who, don't, so, who yeah. are not completely... Just because you have the talent to play the game doesn't mean you're comfortable playing the game because you're not playing it in private. You're playing it in front of 40,000, 50,000 people. It's, and again, you have to get used to that aspect. And I found that very, you know, growing up, I was <clears throat> very shy. And obviously what happened, my, my mum died very young. A lot of things happened. So then say, right, go out on a pitch and play. And be, you, should, you should be fine with that. Not everybody is fine with that. So even that takes mentally a, a lot of change, a lot of, you've got to adapt to, to be comfortable or to be able to hopefully then do your job or, or be able to get the ability that you have out there in front of a huge audience. That has to be taken into consideration. A lot of people aren't comfortable. And then a lot of players aren't comfortable in one-on-one interviews or in front of the media. They're more comfortable playing in front of forty or 50,000 people than sitting in front of 10 or 15 people. You must have seen that, Roy, when you interview. You can see it in their eyes that they're, they're terrified by it. So again, I keep saying this, you've got to go back to the human aspect of it and say just because you have the talent to do the job, it doesn't mean that everyone is skipping to work every morning and we all feel fantastic. Because you play four or 500 games, it... It can't. It clearly can't feel the same as those games tick by. But equally, there's a there's a cutthroatness and a 
a, a ruthlessness to football that I think is is not is not really mirrored in in most other industries that we can't the normal people can't kind of conceive of really. Or it's but, certainly magnified. Yeah, but there's not I mean there's not many jobs. I mean, I, and, you know, there's there's obviously jobs in which there are awful working conditions and that they're not comparable. Clearly, that would be it would be deeply um, insensitive to to kind of use that comparison. But I think in a lot of jobs. There's, a, there's, a, there's more security than there is in football, where if you put your foot in the wrong place and you twist your ankle, that might be you done. It might not, might not rule you out forever, but it might cost you a place in the team, at which point it might cost you a place at the club. You might have to go to another club. You might, you, you'd have to uproot your entire life. It is a brutal, cutthroat world mm-hmm. in which the, kind of, the number of chances you get to actually perform the thing you do are relatively limited. You know, 38 games in a season, that's not, it's not a lot. So, you know, you, you, everything's built into these, these occasions. And I think that that... It would only be human if that pressure, that strain, that kind of, that all or nothingness starts to, I, I, I don't actually, if you were, if, if your primary motivation for playing football was having fun, I don't think you'd survive as a professional. But I wonder, because mm. Hugh was talking about strikers and whether the, the pressure to score goals or the fact that you were a relatively prolific goal scorer meant that that became a bit mundane, a bit routine and, and you, you didn't enjoy that. I wonder whether there is some kind of correlation between ultra-talented players who can also enjoy themselves in terms of having those hugely successful careers. It was something I noticed with Ruud van Nistelrooy particularly. The joy he took from scoring goal every time. Ruud van Nistelrooy celebrated every goal like it was the first. And he was clearly a prolific goal scorer. And then you realise that that's probably also true of the likes of Alan Shearer and Ian Wright, and more recently, Sergio Aguero. When they score, it seems to give them that, that joy equally each time that they do it. The pleasure that they derive from that seems to be one of the things that spurs them on yeah. to that greatness and, and to being amongst the most prolific goal scorers that we've ever seen in English football. So I wonder whether there is But something. it might be just their personalities Scoring goals, yeah, but exactly. The but reaction that, is is from is, is particular to them. But that that's part of their personality to yeah. be able to have both the talent and the satisfaction. That's a dual motivation that keeps them at the very highest. I think self self confidence has a huge part to play in in that aspect of it as well. Is that a lot of people have that inherently? I certainly didn't. It's something that had to grow over time, and you had to convince yourself, put layers on yourself, until you got to a point where you did feel this is where. I'm okay with with where I am and what I'm doing. I'm, I'm I'm competent, and I'm not kidding myself. And and then then you start to relax and enjoy it. And maybe guys like that get that a lot earlier, or they already have it within themselves. That 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 is virtually as they start playing at 18, 19, that is there, and it's not something that needs to develop. So it's a, a matter of maturity, but also is it is there an element as there is in all expressions of joy particularly relating to football and even in supporting your football team quite a lot of that joy is actually relief so if you've got if you're a striker and you have high expectations to meet each and every game you are expected because you're a good striker like Alan Shearer you could tell that he enjoyed every goal exactly the same because he did exactly the same celebration Mm -hmm. he's going through the routine almost Literally, it is just if you're Shola Aliobi, maybe your maybe reactions. So. Yeah, re- relief is an interesting. Absolutely, so there, yeah. there is yeah. an element of thank goodness I have justified my place in the team. I have justified the expectations that I have on myself, the team, the supporters have on me. But also, I have allowed myself to imposter syndrome get away with it for another week. 
Very possibly. Yeah, very possibly. What I wanted to ask you about, you're all clearly amateur players. I've not seen you play, but I, I kind of know how bad you'll be. Have you, um, have you ever been amongst professionals on a training field? Have you actually taken part in a training session? And do you under, have you, did that really open your eyes into the, the difference between Steve is, amateur is players nodding and professional players? Nodding in a sage-like way. No, I've, I've played in a couple of charity games. No, no, not charity games. Oh, right, okay. If you went out to a, a training ground to a first-team... Oh, God, team no tra- thanks. But, but <laughs> again, if you did that, we had a, a member at, uh, at Everton, I don't know whether I told the story, Robert Varzika, who was um, yeah, yeah. A, a foreign... I think he's Polish? Polish, it's I think, Rob. Polish, Bob, yeah. Bobby Vodka, we called him, hilarious. And he had a, an interpreter who fancied himself as a bit of a player. Mm. He had size 11 feet. You knew this wasn't going to work. And he kind of, every day, he'd, he'd kind of watch training. And he'd, he'd, every time he came, we got to know him. And he said, I, I could join in. I can play. I played back home and stuff. Do you want to, and he came and clearly, he never got anywhere near the, but the ball just, he was just completely, and that opened my eyes to actually, he probably can play mm. really competently. But then when you put amongst a bunch of, prof- you realise the, the level that you're stepping up. And that's just, again, just the gulf between the amateur player and the professional. You, and it is in your head as much as anything else. It's actually physically what you're capable of doing. The ball moves and your awareness. But again, it's the job that you've been drilled to mm. do for a long period of time. So clearly it's going to be different than a, an amateur who plays on maybe once a week or it's, but that's the difference and that's maybe again the enjoyment factor is probably more understandable why it's different for, for amateurs than, than professionals but players still love football and what's interesting about the, the element not of, all players well but play, the, the point I was going to make is that quite a lot of them particularly the young, younger generation what do they do when they are together and they are in leisure time they play FIFA they play FIFA, which is often just fun because they are being Because themselves. that's what young players do, because that's what they think that young players... So they, not all they, of them will do that. No, but not they still... Enough of Some them of them to make it Tekken. a thing. Yes. <laughs> they might do. And then we'll have Snake another... Snake or Tetris. We'll yeah, have another podcast games. about, you know, whether... Or read some Jack Reacher. You should enjoy video games. No, you'll get fined for that. No reading. <laughs> um, but there, there, there clearly is enough of a love of the game in and of itself for, for football players to be like amateur football players are because Is playing FIFA they the enjoy love of FIFA. the game? Well, why, why do amateur... I've never played it, so I, I, I don't understand computer games. I really never have. Why do amateur FIFA? players play FIFA? I don't know. Because, you tell me. Because they want the fantasy of being good at football, really? albeit through a video game. Now, that they know is? that they are, so, yeah. they are not able to actually affect that themselves. Okay. They are not able to do that. Like, like all fantasy-based video games are you are being that person you are controlling that person okay. you are living vicariously through that avatar on that screen mm-hmm. and you are feeling some elements of control and therefore power like when you want to be Bowser because you fantasise about being a giant turtle exactly and throwing those green shells just absolutely yeah. fantastic but there are elements of that surely in a football player professional football player playing FIFA so they must enjoy it enough to want to live vicariously through no, that I avatar even if it's just themselves if it's Harry Kane playing with England or Spurs and being Harry Kane and having a laugh about whether they've got you know the right stats of whether I'm better at heading than than FIFA mm-hmm. thinks I am there must be enough of a connection I know what you mean and I think you're probably right to some extent that it, sh- it, it suggests that there is some sort of atavistic connection to the game that players retain but I think you have probably have to separate to an extent the act of playing football and the um, the act of playing football as a video game I think that they I think it's possible to to want to play FIFA but not to feel, do you know what I'd really like actually on my day off is to go and have a kick about. I think those two things are probably separate. I remember there's a recent game between Newcastle and Man United. Matty Longstaff, who I think is about 19, Newcastle born and bred, mm. got in the team, scored the winning he goal. Did. And there was a post-match interview where you could see the pure joy in talking about what he just did, playing for Newcastle, playing against United, scoring against United. 
And sadly and cynically, I looked at that and thought, isn't that, if you can keep that feeling for as long as you possibly can. But I guarantee you, if he plays regularly, the pressure that you're under, that will change within 12 months. If you scored again against, I guarantee you, within 12 months, you'd feel very differently and react very differently. So again, that's, a, that, that's the weight of the foot, the, being weathered by the footballing winds oh my God. again on, <laughs> on a young And I hate it, but that's why I think for young players now, for when, I, again, the... the the focus that's on them, the expectation that's on them, it, I feel it's probably harder to be a young player now because if you get that opportunity, what they, the fans expect and the media expect because you, you're in the spotlight. You can, I, I could kind of play without really being noticed and even though I was that good, it was hard not to be noticed. But now, if you're, you're an 18, 19-year-old in the team, everybody's talking about it's all over social media and you can't get away from it. So I just wonder whether it's harder for young players to be like Matty Longstaff and really enjoy the basic of going out and kicking a football around with, that, with your mates. Is that, that going to be harder for young players in, in the future? That's a really interesting example, though, because Matty Longstaff wasn't... I don't think he was expecting to start that game. He wasn't particularly kind of being talked about as, you know, this kid's coming through, he's going to get into the Newcastle team. It was almost... Maybe not... It won't have been unexpected to him. He would have been training with the first team or whatever. But for him to... I think it was his first start. Like a Roy the Rovers thing. Playing against yeah, his brother yeah. for his home... Playing with his brother for his hometown, his hometown club. Yeah. That's a pretty unique circumstance. Mm-hmm. So it's, ov- it's understandable yeah. that he is still full of kind of delight and joy and mm-hmm. unbridled happiness. But yeah, in a year's time, if he's played 20 games for Newcastle, he's not going to be like that after every game because he's only going to have one debut. He's, a, he's, a, he's not going to be surprised that he's playing. He's not going to be... The, the, the act of scoring won't be kind of an added bonus to him. It'll be like, well, look, Matty, we expect you to get five or six a season. That, so th- as you grow through the game... Your love for it must remain to some extent. You must still like it. Although a lot of players, like Rob Green never liked football. Just happened to be really good at it. Well, good at it. So it's almost like Chinch, but just not quite the good part. But, and also he admitted it in public. His sport was cricket. He loves cricket. So he'd, he'd play, what's the cricket equivalent of FIFA? Cricket, where well, you can play... Brian Lara Cricket on the Mega Drive. Um, you remember Asaze Ohugide, the um, Sheffield Wednesday play, played in the Cup, um, the third round of the Cup, and oh, he did yeah, yeah, a yeah. wonderful interview yeah. afterwards. Just sometimes there is this kind of moment of unbridled joy, enthusiasm, but also the humility that he showed. It's a wonderful interview. Um, go on the Sheffield Wednesday Twitter, you'll find it, uh, back on January the 5th. And it's just wonderful to see. And it's also good for the journalists... Who, who saw that tweet to realise that there is hope in being able to sometimes get that interview where somebody is honest with you. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it should be a massive lesson to all those football players who have either been schooled to within an inch of their life about media training and how to basically give nothing and to be as dull as possible, or those who genuinely, through reasons of shyness, which we completely understand, we've just spoken about, or through reasons of mistrust or not necessarily understanding the relationship and how a good relationship with the media might actually help you it is instructive to show the benefits of being honest, humble, and also to give some sense of how much you've actually enjoyed yourself because we just don't tend to see it very we much. We don't, but equally, in a year's time, if he's suddenly Sheffield Wednesday's regular centre-half, it, that, that's not his... That was a response to the occasion in which he gave that yeah. interview. But I, but I hope yeah. it comes from a place that gives birth to further reactions to other situations yeah. in a similar manner. And I would suggest that this isn't unique to football. Football's under a microscope, which mm-hmm. makes it all the more obvious. But I'm sure there are many other walks of life in which people train in an area of something that they really, really enjoy. But then the reality of that being the way you 
earn money, make your living, pay your mortgage becomes a little bit too difficult to bear and you either stop enjoying it but proceed because you're good at it or find a different path because you don't want to to carry that burden. Certainly, Hugh and I both studied music at university and there were many talented musicians that I went to university with who stepped away from music because they did not want the thing that they enjoyed most in life to also be Ah, the the, the burden of you know their earning responsibility going forward so they found something different to do and music was was sort of like a, a side issue that they could continue to enjoy and there are others like steve and i who just realized they were rubbish and, yep. and should stop him so you look, at, you look at ed now ed would love nothing more than being a didda driver that's all he wants in life is to, to drive a didda but you put him in a didda for a year and oh. he's got a mortgage to pay and his supervisor keeps shouting him that he's not digging enough mm. he's not he's not gonna love it anymore so and he's only two so when you all go out and play with, with, with your mates, the, the amateur, is it unbridled joy? No, it's God, no, not no. anymore. So, but it, it, do you worry about your own performance or whether you're giving enough? Do you, do you do what kind of the professionals do, and you actually then, the, the more you play, the older you get, you do start to think about: Can I still do this? Am I still playing my part? Is he doing the running for me? Do you, so again, even your view of what you're doing is changing over over time. Like, like all the best lovers, you continually question your own performance. <laughs> you have to do. <laughs> But to, it doesn't maintain, get any better, sadly. Yes, to maintain your stance. But there, there, there is an element of frustration because you realise that you cannot necessarily affect a game in, in the way that you would want to were you the superstar footballer that you are in your head. And equally, mm. as you get older, there is an, an acceptance that you can't quite do the things, the, the very small, minor, insignificant, actually quite easy things that you thought were complicated that like you used to be able the ball to do. That you, you said, but, but that, that, that was, I, 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 I apologise for saying that because that was just... But You, you, you meant it. I, I didn't. I, I, can, I, I presume you can all control the ball. If I, if I pinged 10... Balls at you. Well, you're uh, the only one you, in the group who's doing any pinging. That's for sure. Oh, okay, if I if I pass the ball to you, are we going down the road to the park? There, there'd be there'd be no problem with your if I dropped it onto your chest or to your thigh, you'd be able to kill yeah. it and play. Yeah, you absolutely yeah. no problem. Ten no out of ten. Ten out of ten. ten. Oh, well, that, we, again, that, that's that's uh, that's decent. That's decent. Do, how many how many of us do you think Chinch could ping a pass to before his knees completely <laughs> collapsed? I mean, could, would we complete the hat trick? You have heard the story, is it Craig Burley that someone passed him a ball and it kind of arrived around his chest and he didn't know whether to control it with his thigh or his chest so he kneed himself in the face? (laughs) (laughs) That is a true story. Have you ever seen Craig Burley's teeth? They're not in particularly good order. They're not. And that's because he need himself in, in, that in where that came from? Apparently so. Yes. He's been in America, actually, played Burley on ESPN. Yes. So that, that, yes. that section we'll, of we'll tr- let, Let's try and find out whether, that <laughs> is, is, whether that's an urban myth or good, not. Good yeah, that's what I heard. Great for the demographics. <laughs> Mentioning Greg Burley and Shaka Hislop. <laughs> I, and I, Steve Nichol. I do also think this, this conversation and this theory that we have developed over the course of the last hour or so extends to watching sport as well mm. I do believe that maybe it's because we're fortunate enough to get to watch high level high quality football on a regular basis but going to watch 10th tier West Didsbury and Chalton definitely gives me more joy on the occasions that I get to do that than going to watch Premier League but, football but that, because but three, three drinks for a tenner might make that three drinks for a tenner helps the fact that you can have a pint by yeah, the side you're of working. the pitch you're, you're working, working. yeah exactly working. Yeah, but, so maybe, maybe that is an element of it but I, I, I do think that that comes into I, I wonder whether people will assess the way that they watch sport and, and I would really encourage people if they only go and watch say the Premier League or, or Championship football in the flesh, go and watch your local non-league side and get a feel for that sort of that more raw experience and see whether you appreciate it on a different level. Have you ever, though, gone to a game of a club that you would traditionally cover, so perhaps a Premier League club for us, and been offered hospitality 
and not worked and gone and taken the hospitality because I, I found that very difficult because you're kind of betwixt and between. You're in some sort of unhappy valley between working and enjoyment and so therefore you don't really do either. So there is, there is, a, there is an element of attempting to enjoy a game that you'd normally be working at where you wouldn't necessarily enjoy it quite so much or you enjoy working at it so attempting to enjoy it in another way in a more traditional spectator way is actually quite difficult to do I find it quite hard to, to watch any football and not be working there to be perfectly honest it's taken, why doing, if you're offered hospitality you, you can't enjoy it because you are thinking about working no but even if you don't sit, sit in the stands with the normal people yeah. and watch football matches it's quite hard you I will doing, doing the job has taken all the fun out of football for me I can't just because I'm on you're just the analyst yeah, it sounds like there's loads before yeah. well, they, <laughs> no, but you enjoy your work but that doesn't necessarily mean you I enjoy do the, but you again, enjoy the football to the same level you're working as a prof- again when you watch anything you're starting to judge it and think well if I was doing this game and you can't get away from that yeah. and that it's leads the to the, quite a lot of full cynicism that we have yeah. on an almost daily basis but it uh, belies the amount of enjoyment we probably actually genuinely do have if we were being honest about our daily pursuits. If if somebody had given me a scrap of paper and a pen and said, write down the name of your friend who could find a way to not enjoy free hospitality at a Premier League football ground, Mm. Hugh Ferris would be the name that I I would have written down. I I went to that... So I used to cover Manchester United and Manchester City. Went to the uh, Wayne Rooney volley against Newcastle game, hospitality, and I was really annoyed that... I wasn't covering that game because I'd taken the day off to, to allow myself to go on the hospitality. And I hated it because it was a cracking garden. I wanted to be commentating. Surely a couple of pints of Amstel saw to that. No, because I was probably driving because I'm very responsible. Oh. Chinch, to finish this conversation, we started talking about you. We're going to end talking about you. Is mm. there something that you enjoy on an amateur level that most people enjoy playing football at an amateur level? You, you dabbled with golf a little bit, didn't, didn't I played, you? I was a single-figure golfer. So that's the only problem. Anything I do, I tend to excel at. <laughs> uh, apart from single apart figures from per love making, I, my the consistency in my love making for a, pretty much what am I looking at? The last at least six months. thirty years has been, you know, a five out of ten at best. So that's that. There's clearly areas in life that I need to work on. But any sport, you give me a ball sport, and. I'll, I'll be able to play it. But do you enjoy that? It? Because um, it's not that, professional. Hang on, that is a TV show. Come on. Chinch's balls. We, we give, <laughs> no. We, let's workshop the title later. We give Chinch yeah. a variety of ball sports to try to see if he's truly is good at all of them or enjoys any of them this or is, all, enjoys any of them. This this is this already is better than some of the stuff that Sky One do commission <laughs> yeah. hasn't, hasn't this been around for all football you give them a pick up a golf club or play snooker or, or anything I, I played lacrosse I played gr- anything with a ball in it well, I doesn't was, matter the shape I, once made I was fit. able to to play it I once made fajitas with Alexis Sanchez and I can safely say <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that's, that's the title of your autobiography I can safely say that Alexis Sanchez's footballing prowess did not extend to Mexican cooking yes no, no balls in Mexican cooking next that's time sure. Chinch is short of a of a softer story I'd remind me to tell my Alexis Sanchez cheese grater story coming up yeah in a future it's episode because I played rugby but then you tended fans. to get splattered when you played rugby, but so, rugby and then lacrosse is a really tough game is, I really enjoyed that but it, is rugby even a sport oh don't please <laughs> stop now stop is it, now is it a sport? stop stop or stop is it now a stop now Gary Lineker famously played cricket and snooker to a very yeah, high level. Yeah, played cricket to a very high level. Phil Neville yeah. played yeah. cricket to a very high level. Jeff so so it's, it's not just you, Chinch, basically. Of course it's but not just me. We'll try and find something that you actually enjoy just for the, just for the playing of it. See, it's starting to worry me now. Podcasting. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm trying to think of something that I really enjoy. What do I really enjoy in life? I like painting walls with emulsion. 
Do I do really like painting. It gives me time to think, and the fumes help. It's the depth of your character, I think, that really endears you to us, Chinch. Is it? It is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. This actually isn't a story about me. It's connected to me because Primrose, my granddaughter Primrose, has just turned two. She's two and a bit now, and clearly... I'm on telly quite a lot. I'm quite a big deal, Steve. Um, and Primrose has started to see... <laughs> Wait a second. I, I, I already know this. No, Steve was the only one looking at me, looking interested. So that's why I thought <laughs> I'd kind of direct that comment his way. But Primrose <laughs> has started to see me on, on TV and say, there's Grandad. He's a fantastic analyst. Look at that's what she head. says. And she started asking me. She where, knows... Where Danny Hayden So where... <laughs> that's totally... That's uncalled for completely. First words she ever spoke. Yeah, but... Offside trap. But she's saying to me, she knows I go to work now. So I tell her I'm going to work and I'll say I'm going to Burnley. Say Burnley and she'll say Burnley. So I give her all these things. So she knows I go off to work now and she expects to see me on the TV. And she started to say, can I come to work with you, granddad? And the answer is clearly no. And there's no way I'm going to let her on a gantry because it would just be havoc. But I remember the story of um, Paul Lake. We talked about being professional and the personal care I had and, and maybe in a way I did I take it for granted I don't enjoy it as much as I should have done but somebody like Paul Lake makes me realise just how lucky I was because he was a sensational player got injured and, and wasn't able to play and kind of fulfil his career but he, he did uh, there was a period of time when he I don't know whether he's still doing it he's done some kind of radio work does for, it off and on yeah. off and on for, for Man City and this was actually it's where I started on Radio Manchester working with the, the legendary Ian Cheeseman until I was until I was headhunted by Hugh Ferris yeah. but anyway so, so Paul Lake is working you on, were the on, finished article I, I certainly was and uh, so Paul's working with Ian Cheeseman on uh, a radio commentary of a, of a City game and because the way that things have worked out he's had to take his son I'm sure he's about six or seven I think his son he had to take his son to the game so he's had to sit next to Paul on the, on the, in the kind of the commentary positions and so Cleese Paul said, right, the, the, we're going to have to comment out on the game now, so I'm going to need you, Tarquin, to sit <laughs> quietly and just, just don't say anything. Because if you do, it's clearly going to come across. And there's a couple of occasions during the course of the commentary where I think Ian Cheeseman, in his own inimitable way, is doing a sparkling commentary and describing exactly what is happening out there on the pitch. And Paul Lake makes a little comment. And then Paul Lake's son inadvertently pipes up, Dad, can I have some crisps? <laughs> so again, they try to... So Paul puts his headphones down, turns his microphone, goes to speech. Look, look, you can't, you can't do... Daddy, Daddy's working here. Everyone's going to be hearing what you're saying. Right, Daddy, right, Daddy. Okay, so they go back and it all starts up again. And then later in the commentary again, Ian Cheeseman's doing his bit. Paul Lake does his bit. Daddy, I need the toilet! <laughs> so it happened... To, so basically it happened twice. So then Lakey basically... This, this clearly is going to keep... Once a child starts on that road and like gets talking? a reaction, oh my God. They're, they're never going to stop, are they? No. So poor Lakey had to, had to basically down tools, leave Ian, Ian Cheeseman to it, which is, is always going to be a worry because he does need help. Um, but that, that's again why... I'm wondering at what age, what age could I... Unless I put tape over her mouth, at what age am I going to be able to take Primrose? 24. Even then. When, yeah. when she happens to be working for Sky as an she, intern. Which she, she will be because of who her dad is. Yes, well, yes, this is the thing. I'm, I'm actually thinking about this. Is, is this something I should be promoting? If there comes a point where I should take her along and she can see how it all to operates? Be honest, because the future is, is there for her. To be honest, I think it's surprising that Sky haven't all, already, in the same way as they did that fan zone thing, mm. come up with a kind of pundits and their kids feature where you get to listen to the pundit going oh that's a direct cross and then a, then a kid going I need a pool 
But, but yeah, so I'm gonna, I do want to take her, but that uh, it's five or six. It clearly, will happen to Lakey. You can't, you can't risk it, no. can you? Because kids clearly do not even have a rudimentary understanding of the world of broadcasting. <laughs> Which, at six or seven, you're maybe expecting a little bit more from them at that point. And I know Primrose would let herself down badly. She's still in nappies. If she cats herself in the middle of a game, what am I going to do? Even though I can multitask, I can't analyse a fantastic Leeds counter-attacking goal whilst changing Primrose's nappy. Even I can't do that. And what you don't want in the middle of that commentary, with Primrose upon your knee, is uh, her saying, with the microphones open... Where Danny Higginbottom? Bottom. I love Danny Higginbottom. Uh, Chinch, happy birthday and thank you for another soccer story. Mm. Uh, if you have any soccer stories, you can send them to us at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And also, we will, even though Lee Child has given up, we'll carry on. If you have a Reacher novel, open it, take a photo, send it to us, and Andy will read it. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, Stephen, and Andy, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu if you do enjoy it very soon indeed. Paul Lake's son, is he a Little Britain character? Because that's how you made him sound. Oh, yeah. I want that one. I want that one. Little Poo! <laughs> what were the names of those two characters again? Andy. One of them was called Andy. Have yeah. you watched Little Lou, Lou and Andy. Lou and Andy, yeah. Lou and Andy. Have you watched Little Britain back? It is astonishing that it was on air that recently. Some of it is properly, whereas the Fast Show has aged really well. Oh, Fast Show's brilliant. A lot of it's not funny anymore, but it's, it's, not, it's not offensive to anybody particularly. So if we're ranking... Uh, these three television programmes that we've been speaking about over the last five minutes. Sky Sports Softer Saturday. <laughs> Andy Hinchcliffe plays all ball sports. Yeah. Uh, kids go with their dads and play pundits. Yeah. And Little Britain. What's your top three? Well, Little Britain's at the bottom. Sky, did, did, I'm sure Sky had a kids as pundits thin at some point, didn't they? For a charity thing. No, that was just Paul Merson. Just sounded like an eight-year-old child.